So today we enter into the book of Ephesians chapter 1 proper and turn with me there to Ephesians chapter 1. And as you get there, we may ask the question, I will ask the question, is God worthy of praise? And the expected answer is yes, of course, right? Of course he's worthy of praise. And we, but, but the question is, maybe ought be is can we articulate can we explain can we give reason why god is worthy of praise there is most certainly a sense that we can say he is worthy of praise because he is god right just by his very nature as god we could say that he deserves worship but the bible does more than just say god is god and that is that uh, the scripture set forth beautiful and wonderful truth about the nature of God and his grace. And when we say grace, we mean his unmerited, his unearned favor toward his creatures. And this makes him all the more worthy of praise. Do you realize that everything that God does is for his glory? Everything. And the whole of creation is for his glory. Uh, and so... Today, as we come to our, our passage, as we come to the scriptures, I want us to see that God is worthy of all the praise of his people because, this is a particular reason here, because of his glorious grace and salvation. God is worthy of all the praise of, of his people, especially because of his glorious grace and salvation. So what I want us to do today is I'm going to read for us Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. But we'll only be looking at 3 through 6 today. That'll be our focus. And I'll explain why we're reading that larger chunk here in just a little bit. But Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, this is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Now, there's some things that we ought to note about this passage. Uh, the first is that verses 3 through 14 are an extended blessing, right? We, we get that in the very first word. Uh, in verse 3, blessed, right? It's an extended blessing. Uh, and it follows this uh, blessing or praise of God in the forms that we see, like in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, for instance. You can look at Psalm 113, 
uh, Psalm 113. I'll just read uh, verses one and two of that. But look at the you could look at the whole of that and see this kind of same idea that Paul is using here in Ephesians. But Psalm 113 says, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And then the psalmist goes on to give some specific reasons why God is to be blessed or praised. Uh, The second thing we ought note, and this is why I've read the entirety of 3 through 14, and not just what we're focusing on today, 3 through 6, is because in the Greek, uh, verses 3 through 14 are one sentence, right? And we may be confused by that a little bit because if you look at your translation, you probably have things like periods and semicolons, which indicate a new sentence. But that's for our benefit in the English because in the Greek, it's just one sentence. And it's not ungrammatical in the Greek. It's actually follows Greek syntax, right? It, it, it's fine. It's, that's how it could be done. Uh, but it's done through relative clauses and it's done through prepositions that chain together this one sentence. It's not a run-on sentence. So it's not a bunch of ideas uh, that have been failed to be properly perioded. Uh, but it's one sentence. And realize in the, in the Greek in the time of the New Testament, they didn't have periods. They didn't have commas. They didn't have semicolons. They didn't, right? So we, we go back and we add these things because our English grammar demands such strictness of saying where a sentence begins and ends. Uh, but, but I just say that we're going to, right, we're only looking at three through six because we're breaking this down in more manageable chunks for us. But for us to really understand what's going on, we need the, the whole of the passage, the whole of the verses three through 14. It's all one thought which is hard for us, uh, especially I think these days. Uh, I notice when I'm writing that I make very short paragraphs. If you go back and you read some even two or three hundred years ago and you look at some some uh, writings from then, you notice sometimes paragraphs take up multiple pages. And that's just one paragraph. Right. So we we're, we're used to condensing. Right. We're we're Twitter. Or if you're on the hot hip bandwagon, you're, you're a threads. You got a threads going. Uh, if you don't know what that is, it's okay. It's about as worthful as Twitter is itself. Um, but, but right, so we're used to short. We're used to condensing. Uh, but not so in the time of Paul. So today, though, uh, I want us to appreciate the whole of this section, but focus in on verses 3 through 6 and And the first thing that we'll see is in verse 3, and we'll see spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings. So let's look at that in verse 3. And again, as I said, it opens up with this word blessed, or this means worthy of praise, praiseworthy. This is not about us giving God what we might call a blessing, right? So we're not uh, giving him something that he needs. Uh, Let us ever remember that God does not need anything from us. God is whole and complete in himself. He did not create mankind because he was needy. He did not create mankind because he was lonely and he wanted someone else uh, around. Uh, He did not create mankind out of need, but out of the, his own glory his own grace, 
his own love, his character, uh, not because he had need. We need him, but he does not need us. And so this is not us giving something to God that he needs. This is us expressing something that God is already in and of himself. Blessed, praiseworthy, right? worthy of worship. Paul writes of praise to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we know who Paul is writing is blessed, is worthy of praise. It's God, it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's ascribing something to God, right? And what is he ascribing to God? He says, who has blessed us, and that is God has blessed us, right? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so the blessed God has blessed us. And how has he blessed us? Well, there's three prepositions here uh, that tell us how he has blessed us. In the ESV, the order is in Christ, in every spiritual blessing, and in the heavenly places. Now, I say in the ESV because in the Greek and in other translations, in Christ comes last. And the order of the sentence, in Christ comes last. But the ESV translators have fronted in Christ. And I think for a particular reason as we talk about it. So let's let's follow this order then in the ESV. Blessed in Christ. How has God blessed us in Christ? Again, we look, could look at the whole passage here before us. Again and again, Paul directs our attention to Christ. If you go through and you read verses 3 through 14, find how many times it says in him, in Christ, uh, through Jesus Christ. Again and again, we're directed back to the person of Christ. We begin here because this is where we must begin. Of all things, the work is, of Christ is where from all other blessings flow. We have no blessings. If we have no Jesus Christ, what would we do to reflect upon that? Always, we have no blessings if we have not Christ Jesus. So it's in Christ. Friend, you are blessingless. You are without blessing, without Christ. All good flows from him and to him. But if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have been joined with him in faith, if you have been united with him, if you have union with Christ, if indeed you are one of God's people, then you are the recipient of the divine overflow of love. We could, for instance, talk here and reflect upon what Paul writes in Romans 8, 16 and 17. I'm not going to read it for you, but you can uh, go back to it. And maybe this will jog your memory as I say it. We are co-heirs with Christ. Right? So when we are united with Christ, we are made recipients of divine love and favor unparalleled. Secondly, we are blessed in every spiritual blessing. The preposition there is that we translate with, with every spiritual blessing, again in the ESV, with every spiritual blessing. The preposition, preposition there is actually the same in the Greek as it is for the others. So what uh, we miss in our English translation sometimes is that there's a parallelism that is being developed here. So we're supposed to meant to know that these things are related. Uh, it is 
with every spiritual blessing. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So reflect upon that. How much is every? All, right? Not just some, not just a few. It's not as though God said, you know, I have all these, I have all this grace, all this abundance of grace, but I'm only going to give you a few drops of it. That's it. Now, every spiritual blessing. And these are, notice, spiritual blessings, spirit blessings, not physical blessings. Right? Contrary to what some so-called preachers relate, the predominant and most important blessings which God gives unto us are spiritual, not physical. What God grants unto us most in the greatest amount are spiritual blessings, not physical blessings. Why do I say that? Because there are some who preach the gospel in such a way to say that the most important thing that God can give to you is a new car, is more money, right? Send in a check of $100 and God will, will bless it and multiply it, right? That's what they say. That's not the most important thing that God gives unto us. Does God bless us with physical, physical blessings? Yeah, he does. But those aren't the most important thing, right? How do we know this? Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Let's look there, right? Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? Matthew 6, 19 through 21. This is just one place we could go to see this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does Jesus say about the physical blessings that some people are so, so obsessed with seeking? They're temporary. Things break. The best thing, right, the best thing that you have in your home this morning will one day break or rust. Or maybe, as we're here, and we pray that this isn't the case, but maybe as we're here, thieves are at home right now breaking in and stealing everything. Your best thing. And what do you do? What do you have at the end of it? Nothing. Nothing. Well, the best that you have now is temporary. Just as a reflection of this, I have a friend who would often say that he doesn't use a certain function or feature of a thing because it will only do that so many times, you know, right? You lift up the hood so many times at some point that latch is going to break and then you won't ever be able to do it again. So just don't use it. Which that maybe doesn't make sense, right? It's the whole point of the tool is to use it. And while our culture may, may preach to us the message of buy more and more and more and more to replace the broken and the unused things, the things of this world cannot satisfy us. Can't happen. They're temporary. And we need something that is eternal. But what does Jesus say of the treasures of heaven? 
that they are eternal, right? The best of the treasures that you lay up in heaven today will never diminish. Though a million years should pass in the halls of heaven, not one blemish will ever be found upon the stores of its treasures. And I would just ask, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you live your life in belief of that? Christ, in Christ, God, our, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And again, there's that phrase, and that phrase is a, a favorite of Paul's in the book of Ephesians. It's used in some different ways. Uh, you can find it again, and I'm just going to list these for you. You can go look them up later if you want to see the context of this. Uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 10. And chapter 6, verse 12. So 120, 2, 6, 3, 10, and 6, 12. We have this use of this phrase in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies. And it's just what we've been talking about when we talk about spiritual blessings, right? It's in the heavenly places. That's, that's where our treasure is. The, their benefit, the blessing of them is not in this temporal age, but in the age to come. And so have we reason to praise God? If you are in Christ Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he has said he has done, then you are the recipient of blessedness. God has blessed you. He has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now let's continue our passage and see what that entails because we're not done yet exploring this. Let's consider chosen adoption in verses 4 and 5. Chosen adoption. Adoption. Verse 4 continues, even as or just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What does every spiritual blessing entail? It encompasses everything in regards to our election as believers. It comprises the believer's justification, sanctification, in one day glorification. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that word, therefore, chose is often this theological term which we use called election. When we talk about doctrines, we talk about the doctrine of election. The sovereign choice of God is not a new concept in the Bible. It's not just something that Paul added in in the New Testament. It stretches all the way back to the Old Testament, to the very beginning. Consider, for instance, the people of Israel. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. The sovereign choice of God is not a new concept, though it may offend our sensibilities. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6, Moses speaking to the people of Israel says this. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. 
but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what does Moses say to the people of Israel? He says, he reminds them, God has chosen them out of all the peoples on the earth to be his special people. And what was the basis for his choice of the people of Israel? Well, God reminds him here, right? He says, it's not because you are a great nation. Like God knew that the people of Israel might get this idea in their head, and he knew that we today might get the same idea. He knew that they might get this idea that somehow God is like the captain of a dodgeball team. And he's picking the best, the smartest, the brightest, the most agile. I want you, right? No, if God was like the captain of a dodgeball team, he waits until all the other good players are gone. And he's like, you. And I'll just say, woe is me. That was often me. Now, I, was, I, I was good to do middle of the pack. And, you know, I felt good about myself then. But, but here Moses says, right, he's not picking the biggest. He's not picking the, the strongest. God didn't choose Israel because Israel had a mighty army, much gold, and vast lands. No, the people were the fewest. The people were in subjugation to the Egyptians. They were slaves. They had no army, no gold, and no lands. So why did God choose the people of Israel? Well, Moses writes, he says, for two reasons. The first is love. God loved the people. And the second, and we'll deal with this more extensively here, is he was keeping his oath. He was keeping his promise. God had made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And why did, so let's ask this question then, why did God make a covenant with Abraham? Was God coerced? Abraham wrestled with God. We know Jacob did. But did Abraham wrestle with God and say, God, you're going to bless me and my family and you're going to make me into a mighty nation. You promise me right now or else I'm going to really sock it to you. Did Abraham have over God something that would compel God to make such an oath? And the answer is no. Abraham didn't. There was no reason why God should bless Abraham or any other. So why was it? It's the same reason Moses gives at first. Love. God loved Abraham. God loved the people of Israel. What is God like according to the Apostle John and 1 John? God is love. Why does God love? It's because that is who God is. It's the nature of God to love. By the way, for contrast, it's in our nature to hate. It's in our nature to sin. But not so with God. God is holy and God is 
love. God's character is one of love. And here's an important question for us in considering this passage here before us. What is the basis for God's choice today? When it comes to those who are in Christ Jesus, what is the basis for his choice? Some would argue, looking at the scriptures, they would say, well, God looks forward in time and he sees uh, little Johnny. He's going to grow up and he's going to he's going to choose to believe in me. He's going to choose to follow after me. And so I'm going to choose him because he chose me. But notice in our passage here what the scripture says. This isn't what Dale says. This isn't what some old dead guy says. This is what God says. Even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And this phrase here, before the foundation of the world, means before time was. Now that's a nonsensical statement, isn't it? Because was is past tense. So how can you be past tense if there is no time to have a past tense or a future tense or or a present tense? This is the frailties of humanity, right? This is the limitation of humanity. We live within time. God does not. God has always existed. And even that is a qualifier of time, right? Always. Before there was even time, God was and is and will be. And God made his choice of those who would believe, those who would be in Christ before time. So when we were elected before the foundation of the world. In Isaiah 46.10, Isaiah 46.10, God says that he is the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times not things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose or consider what Paul writes in Romans chapter 9 verses 10 through 13 notice the time issue here right notice the time issue and not only so but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man our forefather Isaac though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We are told that Jacob was loved, and out of God's love for Jacob, before Jacob had done anything, he wasn't even born. Right? He, he didn't do any good. Notice that Paul belabors that point. Right, They had done nothing, either good or bad. God didn't look forward in time and say, oh, Jacob's going to do good. I'm going to choose him. I'm going to love him. Oh, Esau, he's going to do bad. I'm going to hate him. No, before anything had been done, before they had been born, they hadn't done good or bad because of God's purpose of election, he chose to love Jacob. He chose to bless Jacob. He gave grace to Jacob. It's not of works, but of him who calls. Because of his good pleasure, 
God's sovereign pleasure. So understand that God's choice existed before you did. God's purpose of election was from before the foundation of the world. So we might ask then the question, what is the means of our election? What's the, how, how are we saved? And we see that here again, Paul gives us, he says, he chose us in him. That is in Christ. God chose us in Christ. The, and Christ Jesus is the only one who has ever merited grace. He's the only one who has ever merited favor from God. Why do I say that? Because he is the only one who has ever lived a holy and perfect life. He is the only one who has ever fulfilled all righteousness. Right? He says that uh, when he gets baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like, whoa, man, I should be baptized by you. And here you are asking me, I'm not unworthy. I'm unworthy to untie your sandals. And I would baptize you. And Jesus says, let it be done for the fulfillment of all righteousness. That's who Christ is and was, right? He is perfect. He's the one who deserves. He deserves every spiritual blessing. Consider Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God, the book of Hebrews tells us. He is the image of the invisible God, the book of Colossians tells us. This is important, too, when we think about the image of God. We, friends, were to be image bearers. That's how we were created. Notice this in Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And of Jesus Christ, we read Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in between those two verses, we have the fall. We have Adam and Eve's first sin. And we have every sin that has stained mankind since then. Man is plunged into sin, into death. In man there was once the image of God, but now there is not left because of sin. But Christ is in all ways the image of the Father. He is the perfect Son. And it is only in Him, in Christ, through Christ's perfect and holy life, his sacrificial death, his vindicating resurrection, that we can be made partakers of divine grace. This is and was and has been the plan of God, the will of God, the purpose of God from eternity past. Christ did not go to the cross as plan B. Oops, things really got messed up. What are we going to do to fix it? It was the purpose of God. Always, from before the foundation of the world. God does not choose any because he sees in them some spark of the divine life. He does not choose because he is forced to make such a choice. And understand that if we are saying, well, God looked forward and he saw that I would, be, I would, I would have faith and so he had to choose me, we are forcing God to make a choice. God is no longer sovereign. 
he would be forced to choose if we had some matter in it. And what's at stake, why it's important we understand this doctrine, why we grasp this, is nothing less than the nature of God's sovereignty. Either God is sovereign, either he reigns and rules over all things from eternity to eternity as he so pleases, or he is subject to the whims of his creatures and creation. Beloved, listen. If you made it this far, some of this may confuse you. It's, it's a challenging doctrine for us, right? It may offend you. God's sovereign choice may be repulsive to you. But understand that such offense is towards God. And it's not towards me or any other man. But God, submit yourselves to the scripture. Seek what, seek what God says of himself. And this is nothing, nothing less than we all must do. Uh, what offenses there are in the Bible against our ways and how much we must amend them. Now we may ask the question, well, who does God elect, right? So even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, who does he elect? Well, what did God say to the Israelites? I chose you because you were great and mighty. No, right? You were fewest in number. Hear what God has to say to you. Uh, Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's a few... Uh, verses here that I want us to look at so that we understand this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll start with just verse 18. I'm not going to read through the whole passage, but I want it there before you uh, read through it. Verse 18 says, though, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So first we just recognize that the cross is folly. Christ crucified is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, to us who believe, it is God's power. Uh, skip down to verse 26. Listen to what he writes, what, what God says to the Corinthian church here. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, notice that too, right? Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the words of God sink in here. God shows the things that, that were not to shame the things that are. As with the Israelites of old, God chose the fewest, the weakest, the ones who were not. God chose the lesser to shame the greater. And how deep-rooted is pride in us that we think we deserve salvation? How great is the sin that dwells in us to think that we have anything to do with our salvation besides our own sinfulness, besides our own weakness, besides our own guilt and shame? That's what we bring to salvation. We lie dead in the valley 
And God in His grace breathes life into dead bones. The root of God's choice of any is God Himself alone. I'll let you think about that for a moment. The root of God's choice of any is God Himself alone. He is unmoved and unchanging in His purpose. And if we boast, right, Paul writes that to to tell the Corinthians, right? If you, if you boast about this, if you have anything to boast about, it's boasting in God. It's boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ, not yourself. You had nothing to do with it. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's the goal of election then? Right? So, so who's, who's elected? The one who God chooses. The one who God in his divine purpose loves. And what's the goal of election? And I know there's a lot that I'm leaving unsaid. But time fails us, right? But what's the goal of election? To what end has God chosen his people? What's your, if you were in Christ... What does God want for you? What's his plan and purpose, his will? Look at the end of verse 4. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Holy. We've actually seen this word once already in the book of Ephesians. And you say, well, we're only at verse 4, so where was it? We go back up to to verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. That word saint there is the word holy. The word holy here is the word holy. Right, so we've seen it. There, as we're talking about saints, we're talking about our status or, or a sense of identity. Here we're talking about moral purity. So that's the difference in the use of the word here. Here we're talking about a moral purity. Right? When we talk about God being holy, we talk about a moral quality of God in one sense. And God has called us to be holy. That's God's purpose for you. In contrast to that, Satan's purpose for you is unholiness. Right? He wants you to be immoral. God wants you to be moral. That's what he's created you for. And that's what he saved you for. Uh, and when Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden, Satan seemingly accomplished his purpose. But God's purpose ever is the holiness of his people. Paul to Titus writes that the people of God are in Titus 2, 13 through 14. Titus 2, 13 through 14. Paul writes to Titus and says that the people of God are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, listen to this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Or that marvelous passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And by the way, we might just put in here, what is the image of the son? The exact imprint of the nature of God, right? That's the purpose. God wants us to be holy as he is holy. God's purpose is that we would be holy and that we would be blameless. That's the second 
uh, item here, right? He, that we would be blameless. And this word here is uh, a word for unblemished. It's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to talk about sacrifices, an unblemished sacrifice. We're to be unblemished like Christ is unblemished, right? He's the perfect unblemished sacrifice. We're to be like him. We're to be blameless, right? This is Christ's work. He, he, his work, Christ Jesus's work is to present us as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Colossians 1. And then in love. Now, depending on your version. Again, this is the tricky part because there is no, there are no uh, punctuation in the original Greek. So we uh, scholars and those who study such things attempt to place punctuation to make sense for us. And there's a question here. What does in love attach to? So in the ESV, for instance, at the end of verse four, you'll see a hard stop, a period at, after before him in love, new sentence. Uh, if you've noticed how I've read it, I prefer that in love goes with what comes before rather than goes after, because you notice I don't do a hard stop before the in love. That's, that's on purpose. It wasn't that I just missed the period. Um, so, right, there's this question. One commentator uh, says that in love is probably a transitional prepositional phrase, and it attaches both to what comes before it and what comes after it. So we might say that God's love overflows to us and our being holy and blameless before him. And surely, as we look into verse 5, as we talk about God predestining us for adoption, that surely that must include his love right so we could see it either way and so let's look at verse 5 it says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will so what are our spiritual blessings right that's what we're talking about what is every spiritual blessing well one of the spiritual blessings is adoption or we might say sonship or daughtership through Jesus Christ, we are brought into the family of God. And there's much that we could talk about here. And if you want to know more about probably some of the context to this and in the view of Roman adoption, I'd be happy to talk with you about that afterwards. I don't we don't have time to stop and press into that fully. But but this there's this idea, again, that that we are adopted into God's family. We could go to Romans 8, 14 and 17 and medita meditate upon us upon this more. Uh, but lest we think that this is the only place in Romans 8 that we have this blessing mentioned or here in Ephesians, I want us to look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Let's see this issue of adoption again. This is, this is wonderful stuff. Right, Galatians 4, 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, what's, what do we get in result of that? And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now let's ask the question, did God have to adopt us in Christ? No. Did he have to make us heir of anything? No. What all mankind deserves ever 
and always is the same thing that was promised to Adam and Eve if they ate of the tree, which we know they did. And what was that promise? On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Friend, the only thing that you deserve is death. What you have earned in this life is death. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin, what sin earns is death. And I repeat this because we often think wrongly about this. We think we deserve better than death. Doesn't God know who I am? Doesn't he know how hard I've worked to get where I am? I deserve blessings. No, you deserve death ever always. You will never deserve anything less than death or anything more than death. We think that God is indebted to us. But instead, we understand that we are sinful wretches. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. God saves sinful men out of his love. And he blesses them, not just with like, okay, now you can go sit in the corner or something. Don't make any more trouble. He blesses those whom he saves with adoption, with being made sons and daughters, with being made his heirs, co-heirs with Christ. He blesses them with adoption as sons because as the scripture says here, right? according to the purpose of his will. In the ESV, that word that's translated purpose there is a word that also means good pleasure. So we kind of actually have a a redundant phrase here, right? According to the good pleasure of his will. What's Paul's point in that? The duplication here is to emphasize that all this, every spiritual blessing, Salvation, redemption, justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption, heirship. All this rests in the purpose and the decree of God. Our adoption is God word. right? It's meant to relationally send us to God and God sent. It's from him. You are saved because God so determines it to be so. He blesses you with his grace and goodness, makes known to you his love because the sovereign Lord sees fit. And it's out of his good pleasure. He doesn't do it grudgingly. He's not saying, oh man, I got to save someone else. It's out of his good pleasure, out of the desires of his heart. He acts in glorious grace. And so let's see that next in verse six. Glorious grace. And again, by way of reminder, what is grace? Uh, Simply, we can define it as unmerited. That's just to say unearned. It's unmerited, unearned favor. The spiritual blessings of which Paul here writes are grace. They're gifts. Do you deserve a gift? We might think so, right? On birthdays and on Christmas, we might say, I deserve a gift. 
It's not a gift if you deserve it. It's wages if you deserve it. Now, grace is a gift. We don't deserve gifts. Yet God gives good gifts. Listen to this out of Romans 3, 23 and 24. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned and none hold the glory of God, but as many as who believe are justified by his grace, a gift through the life and work of Christ Jesus. Or as we'll see in a little bit in Romans 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. If there is one thing that you ought to walk away with today from our time together, it is this. God is worthy of praise. He is to be praised. What is the glory, the brilliance of his grace? Right? When we see this word, the glory of his grace or his glorious grace, what is the brilliance of it? That word glory is this word for brilliance or majesty or brightness, shining. What is it? What quality is it? It's immeasurable. It's without comprehension to us. We will not understand the gloriousness of the grace of God until we stand in heaven and are recipients of it in full. For now we know in part. Then we'll know in full. When we join with him in heaven and witness the final judgment, then grace will be grace to us. And it is this glorious grace which he has freely bestowed on us. Notice that, which he has blessed us in the beloved, which he has freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And who is the beloved? It's Jesus, right? We could look to Jesus' baptism when, as he goes under the water and comes back up, right? What what does the voice from heaven declare? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or so too, when he is transfigured, when he is transformed on the mount, what do we hear from heaven? Matthew 17, 5. Matthew 17, 5. He, that is Peter, was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God is worthy of all praise and glory, for he has purposed for his good pleasure to elect, to call, to bless some with every spiritual blessings. He has called some to be his sons and daughters. And the question ringing in your mind may be, so how can I be saved? Well, as the Father called from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I say to you, listen to Christ Jesus Listen to the scriptures. How can you be saved? Well, you're in a wretched state. And there is nothing that makes you worthy of the eternal choice of God. You are most pitiful. But God. The crowd, after listening to Peter preach to them on the day of Pentecost, asked the same question. So I offer this as our answer. How can you be saved? Listen to this from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39. Acts 2, 37 to 39. Now when they heard this, that is the crowds, as they heard Peter preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They're asking the question, how can I be saved? And Peter said to them, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You need the forgiveness of your sins because the wrongs that you have committed, the evil that you think and say and do, the good that you fail to do, condemns you before a holy God. And in God's justice, God is just. Again, sometimes we get this wrong and we say, well, God is love and it doesn't matter anything I do. But God is also just. He is holy. And his character demands that sin, that traitorous sin, be punished. He must punish sin. But in Christ Jesus, there is offered forgiveness of sins. We didn't cover today, but I want to go back to Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In Christ, we have redemption, forgiveness, grace. And so to you who ask, can I be saved? The, the answer is repent, turn from your sins and turn to God. Have a heart change. Believe in Christ Jesus. Trust in the Father's love and goodness. Be baptized, that is, follow in obedience to God. Identify yourself with Christ in the likeness of his death and be raised to walk in a newness of life. Pursue Christ Jesus with your whole heart, with all that you are. Believe this, Hebrews 10, 14. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he, that is Christ Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus Christ had pay, has paid the penalty of his people's sins for all time. And this was God's divine purpose from before the foundation of the world, before time began, God purposed Christ. And your sins can be forgiven if you believe in Jesus, if you confess him as your Lord. So friend, praise God. Give him the glory to his name. Bless his name as holy. Repent and be saved. And brothers and sisters in Christ, praise God. Words really fail. What love and grace and goodness and kindness and mercy and patience and faithfulness and gentleness and peace God has blessed us with in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing. There is nothing, and I understand when I say this, we might think differently because we struggle in our flesh. But there is nothing that you lack in Christ. Uh, Peter writes and says that, Everything for life and godliness God has given unto us. Everything. Where would we be without Christ? What joy would we have without the Spirit? What would our end be without our sovereign Father? And so let these words be the fire that burns in your bones. Let the scriptures fill you with zeal. May you storm down the gates of hell and snatch from the clutches of the evil one those who are perishing. And brothers and sisters, wake up, sleep no longer, rise and steal yourself for battle. May our swords of the spirit and the shields of faith ring with the sounds of war. Let us be killing sin that we may walk as we are, holy and blameless in love. Let us pray.
Oh, Father God, we pray that you would save your people. Father, we need, we need your grace. And we confess, Lord God, this morning, we confess this day that we have done nothing, nothing to deserve anything good from you. We have done nothing to deserve any blessing. And yet, Lord, out of the abundance of your love, out of the abundance of your grace, out of the abundance of your faithfulness, out of who you are, O Lord God, you have given unto us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, to which we can only say, praise be to you, O Father. Praise be to you, O Son. Praise be to you, O Spirit. Father, we pray, we pray, Lord God, that we would give you the glory to your name. And as we go into this community around us, as we go into our workplaces and our neighborhoods, as we go into our families, Father God, that this would be on our lips always. Praise you. And Father, that we would bring others, that we would see others come to praise you to worship you as you ought be worshipped. Oh, Father God, we pray. We pray that uh, your spirit would go forth, would go before us, would give us words to, to speak. And Lord, that hearts may be changed. And we know, Lord God, that that is your work, not ours. But we also know that you have given unto us a responsibility to proclaim. And so help us to be bold, to preach Christ Jesus, him crucified, resurrected, ascended to your right hand. Now, Father, be praised in us, be glorified in us. And so we pray all this for your glory and for our good. In the name of our only Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.